Well, thanks everyone for joining us. Uh, Arnesta just got bumped off, but she'll be back on in a second. Uh, my name is Owen Higgins. I am your host. This is the Flashpoint Podcast. Um, today, uh, we're going to be talking with Arnesa Costura. Uh, uh, she is a survivor of the Bosnian genocide. Um, and that uh, event has been in the news and, you know, kind of like in the historical discourse a lot lately, uh, what with the, uh, you know, the involvement of NATO in that conflict and, you know, the controversy around that, um, especially uh, as far as like certain figures, kind of the way that people, some people talk about that and with NATO in the news, of course, because of Russia and the, the invasion of Ukraine and, and, uh, you know, a lot of countries in the region who haven't joined NATO before are thinking about joining NATO now. Uh, a, a lot of people have looked to that conflict and that, uh, you know, that, that involvement uh, with, with kind of an eye toward uh, looking at that historical context. Uh, so that's one of the reasons that Arnesa is joining us uh, today. But also, um, uh, I think she has a lot of really interesting and sharp things to say about nationalism and how that uh, leads to, you know, really negative outcomes like genocide and, and, and war and all kinds of, of, of you know, equally uh, horrific outcomes. I think that's kind of the broader frame of this conversation that we're going to have. Um, but, uh, but Arnesa, um, so thanks for joining us. Um, thanks for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, could you could you kind of start by by telling us a little bit about your background? I know I know that we you know we could spend uh, the full hour and probably longer uh, <laughs> just talking about you know your life experience. But if you could maybe try to you know just maybe like even like ten minutes, just kind of explain kind of where you're from and uh, and and not only like where like geographically, but I'm really talking about like you know the 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 events that occurred uh when you were younger that have shaped uh obviously you know uh, your life and your politics but uh to just kind of like explain what that's all about yeah absolutely um yeah so i was born in a country that no longer exists i was actually born um at a time when uh, the socialist federal republic of yugoslavia was still together um, so I do have my original birth certificate that reflects that. <laughs> um, but I was born in Sarajevo, uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina. Obviously, during, you know, my birth and a couple years afterwards, it was relatively uh, a peaceful time. Um, and then, unfortunately, um, it wasn't. <laughs> and uh, a lot of people sort of kind of assume that it all just happened overnight. And I'm sure to, you know, my parents and me and our friends and our loved ones, that's kind of how it felt that there was peace and then overnight came, you know, war and strife and our cities were under siege. However, that's not quite um, how it unfolded. Um, so I spent basically the you know, early childhood years of my life um, under siege in Sarajevo. Um, and my family was kind of spread out, um, unfortunately, 
um, right sort of at the beginning of the war. Uh, my family split their time between Visegrad, which is in eastern Bosnia, and Sarajevo. Uh, and my father, my grandfather, my uncle, um, lots of our other family members and friends were in Visegrad when the war started. And so they were imprisoned in concentration camps, um, as were many of our friends and family members. Um, and uh, my father was able to escape eventually, thank God, and he survived. But my grandfather and my uncle and my aunt were all killed in Vishagrad, um, which was under the control of Serb forces. So my, you know, like I said, my early formative childhood years were really, you know, brutal. <laughs> we were cut off from the rest of the world. We had no water, um, no electricity, no food. And we were basically, you know, surrounded by snipers and bombs and uh, this sort of fear of being dragged away to concentration camps or rape camps, which were set up and happening all over the country. Um, but you, sorry, I just, I just, I just wanted to just say one thing. I, so I was listening to a prior interview that you had done and you were talking about how, uh, the forces had basically surrounded, like ringed you like on, on mountaintops. Is that right? Kind of just like, yeah. kind of completely surrounded the city. Yeah. I think, you know, a lot of people don't really, obviously haven't been to Bosnia. So it's, um, the interesting thing about where I'm from is that the city itself is kind of in a valley and you're really surrounded by these four mountains. And, um, on a good day, it's beautiful. On a bad day, it basically gave them exactly what they needed to ensure that we were stuck inside and they were raining down bombs and mortar shells and grenades and snipers every single day. I mean, anywhere on an average day, anywhere between like 300 to 500 mortar shells fell down in Sarajevo. And I think on the worst day, the record was like over 2,000 mortar shells in a single day so i mean that it's constant basically it is constant bombardment it does not stop even when there's a ceasefire the ceasefires never lasted very long because the peace talks never lasted very long um so you know on top of this sort of you know constant bombardment of sarajevo you also had to deal with these very strategically set up snipers and the snipers were basically terrorizing the civilians um, and they did not care if you were elderly if you were a child um, it did not matter you know they would shoot at you they shot at me I think I was only five years old <clears throat> we were trying to grab water out of one of those um, help trucks that comes every once in a while um, and they shot at me and my neighbors and you know you could visibly see that I'm a tiny child, but it didn't matter. And obviously I was thankful um, that I didn't actually get shot and I didn't get killed. But many of my friends um, and loved ones were in fact killed. Um, in Sarajevo, over 1,600 children um, were, were killed just by the snipers, um, which is obviously a horrific figure. And even one life is, you know, bad enough, but uh, thousands is, is much worse. Um, but all of these things, obviously, that happen, very traumatic, very horrific, 
um, they didn't happen overnight, you know, and, and, and so they started fermenting a really long, long time ago. Um, and obviously, as being a child of war and genocide, I didn't know that at the time. You know, I just had my experience to kind of go off of. Um, but as I grew up, as the war kind of came to an end, I couldn't get rid of this gnawing like feeling as to why it had happened. You know, why uh, was my grandmother killed? Why was you know my uncle still missing? Why was my my dad in a concentration camp? Um, all of these questions would just kind of gnaw at me. So I, you know, decided to pursue really an education and a career in genocide studies and try to learn much, much more than was available than what was initially available to me about the conditions that led to the war and to the genocide. Why did it happen? How did it all unfold? Who was all involved? All of these sort of things. And so I think I did my first, you know, little research project on this when I was about 13 years old. Um, and ever since then, it's kind of consumed the vast majority of my life. I mean, it is my career. It's what I write about. It's what I talk about. Not my own personal experience necessarily, but just the sort of overarching experience of what precisely happened in Bosnia and why it happened. And the why is ethno-nationalism. You know, and um, for those who don't know much about Yugoslavia, um, before I was born, <laughs> during, you know, some of the uh, peak times of my parents, there was, a, a, you know, a leader that was kind of quite beloved by the vast majority of people, Josip Broz Tito. He united the country and these six republics um, under this sort of, you know, brotherhood and unity. And once he passed away in uh, 1980, this, you know, his, his death left basically a vacuum um, and an empty space. And unfortunately, eventually that space would be filled by Slobodan Milosevic, who was very power hungry um, and basically realized that unlike Josip Broz Tito, who used anti-nationalism to bring people together, he used the exact opposite. He used ethno-nationalism to basically fearmonger and get the people he needed to get on his side in order to pursue his goals of, you know, greater Serbia expansionism. Um, so, this, so this had been... Had, had been- uh kind of kind of creeping for a while then oh absolutely you know it wasn't you know it wasn't 1992 war this had been happening for you know years before that in fact throughout the 1980s that's when we kind of see this ethno nationalism start to creep into the political discourse and you see Slobodan Milosevic kind of use it um, in his speeches. He would start to kind of, he, he would very much speak to this sort of, you know, nationalist rhetoric. Like he would, he would kind of fearmonger a little bit. It started very softly. Like he would, he would speak just to the Serbs, to the ethnic Serbs, instead of speaking to the whole country. And he would be like, nobody will beat you. 
you know, nobody will touch you. I'm here. I'm your defender, um, which was obviously different than what the people of the ex-Yugoslavia were used to. Because before that, it was, oh, the president is always going to speak to all of us, right? And suddenly he was just speaking to the Serbs and he was kind of fear-mongering. And then as he kind of, you know, ascertained his control and grew in power, um, obviously he he gained control over the, you know, the uh, national TV stations and radio stations and magazines. I mean, his influence grew slowly, but so did his control over like mass media. And then we see this huge, massive propaganda campaign. So we go from brotherhood and unity, you know, united South Slavs to the Muslims are coming. They're going to put your daughters into hijabs. They're going to kill you. And just a whole bunch of fear mongering that was like not founded anywhere in reality. And you could see kind of, you know, um, Milosevic's, I guess, dreams of like expansionism and sort of this greater Serb hegemony that he wanted to establish. And then the country started declaring, or the republic started declaring independence. And you had Croatia, and you had Slovenia, um, and then eventually Bosnia would declare independence. And as each of the countries declared independence, Milosevic's forces would attack them. But Bosnia got pretty much the worst brunt of it because Bosnia was the most ethnically diverse at the time. So unlike the other, you know, uh, republics in Yugoslavia, Bosnia had, you know, the Bosnian Muslims or the Bosniaks, um, atheists, uh, Jews, Roma, and then ethnic Serbs and Catholics or Bosnian Christians and Bosnian Catholics, depending on who you speak to. Um, so there was a lot more diversity. And in fact, when you kind of look at some of the research and um, some of the the writings of Milosevic, his own like personal kind of writings, or not just Milosevic, but also people like Radovan Karadzic, who was the Bosnian Serb leader at the time. When you start to look at their kind of writings, they have these discussions about how difficult it was going to be to kind of ferment that ethno-nationalism in Bosnia and how they would need to ramp up their propaganda, Um, which has always been really funny to me because it kind of, you know, it indicates that it was a very targeted campaign towards people in Bosnia to get them really to turn against each other. Um, So they they needed to sell it because it wasn't very popular. No, no, not not at all. No, no, my God. Then, you know, and so it it took years, you know, people think that this happened overnight, but no, it took years. Um, And in fact, you know, Bosnia declared independence in 1992, right? But in 1991, we have recorded phone calls um, with Radovan Karadzic, who is a convicted war criminal now, but at the time was basically the the Bosnian Serb president, um, and with one of his like generals, and they're talking about how they're going to attack <clears throat> Sarajevo, and they're saying things like, you know, I I I, I they don't understand what's going to happen, and I remember specifically like the quote that one of them says and says. Within a couple of days, all the Muslims in Sarajevo are going to be killed off. 
300,000 Muslims are going to be killed off. And then the Karajic says something like, let them burn, like, let all of them burn. So this is actually before Bosnia even declared its independence. Like, there was a war going on in Croatia at the time, because obviously they had declared independence first. And so as Bosnia declares their independence in 1992, kind of seeing what's happening with the other republics, they... You know, they didn't come out willy-nilly and say, we're going to declare the independence. They had a referendum on the independence. And they basically, the referendum said, you know, are you in favor of a united, sovereign, um, you know, cohesive Bosnia, a country of equal Muslims, Serbs, and Croats, right? And 99.7% of the people that came out, um, said voted yes so they were in favor of the independence but uh the the a good majority of the bosnian serbs were basically told by karadzic and bosnian serb leadership like people like bilena plavšić for example not to vote for the referendum so it was still like a 70 percent majority 70 percent of the country ended up coming out to vote and 99% of that 70% voted yes for independence. But there was like a whole propaganda campaign that was basically like, you can't vote for independence because, you know, if you do, the Muslims are going to come. They're going to kill you. They're going to put your daughters into hijabs. It was it was a massive, I just, a massive propaganda campaign. And I think people, when they talk about the disintegra- disintegration of Yugoslavia and how you know, how it all happened and unfolded. And then the the Balkan Wars in general, they often fail really to mention the role that propaganda played into all of it. It was in newspapers. It was on TV. It was in every speech that they said um, on the radio constantly. I mean, you, it it was not very subtle at all. Um, It was, you know, yeah. So, so you're talking about this propaganda and and this you know this nationalist um, appeal, but uh, as you're saying, you know, just one year uh, before the war, uh, it, it sounds like most people were on board uh, with with Bosnia uh, becoming independent. So, can you just kind of walk us through like like how did it come from how did it get to the to the point of uh, the war and then the genocide and, and, and the ethnic cleansing and the camps. Yeah. So Bosnia declares its independence, but at that point in time, we already kind of, we, the, we already had a, like this inkling of what was going to happen because there was all this talk about ethnic cleansing. So they were already have like the Bosnian Serb leadership and Milosevic in Serbia, they were already sort of preparing to, like in their minds, there was a strategy about ethnic cleansing, basically, and there was phone calls and discussions about that. Um, so on April sixth is actually considered the first official day of the war, which is the day before, the day after Bosnia declared its independence. So the Yugoslav National Army, now under the control of Milosevic's forces, surrounds Sarajevo, um, and you know starts bombing the city. So initially, 
the vast majority of the soldiers were part of what was once the Yugoslav National Army. Um, eventually, however, this transforms and a lot of paramilitary forces are created, like the Bosnian Serb forces led by Karadzic and Mladic. And then the Yugoslav National Army actually ends up having like a massive um, issue with a lot of people leaving the army as well. But that's a whole nother story. Um, but anyway, so they started, you know, in Sarajevo with the YNA army under Milosevic's orders. And then you, you had obviously Karadzic working for the Bosnian Serbs. Um, and it was, I wouldn't say it was very slow. That part was quite actually done very quickly and efficiently. So while Sarajevo is being bombarded, they're also going from like village to village, town to town throughout the country. And um, they're either getting regular Bosnian Serbs to join them by, you know, they're giving them weapons and they're saying, you know, join your Serb brothers or they're creating little paramilitary sort of, you know, militias and forces all around. So we see it in this very small town, Visegrad, right? One of the earliest cases of ethnic cleansing. This was a, it was quite a small town. I think it was like about 30,000 people. And um, the vast majority were actually Bosniak Muslim. It was the place of some horrific crimes against humanity, genocide, ethnic cleansing, systematic rape. Um, basically, the Bosnian Serb forces come in, they surround the town, they start killing people off, they start taking the women and girls as young as 12 years old into rape camps. Um, they put the men into concentration camps. They kill so many that Basically, they ended up throwing most of their bodies into the Drina River, which is why it's now called as the Bloody River, uh, the Bloody Drina. Um, that the river literally turned bloody. It was bloody for months. Like, you could not, you know, do anything with it. Um, in fact, some of the worst, like, crimes of humanity took place to the point where um, they they burnt people alive, right? Like, literally children elderly women men locked them in houses locked like 70 people in a house and burnt them alive so just horrific stuff well places like Visegrad were ethnically cleansed um, within like a three-month period so they started in april and then by like july end of july beginning of august it was done there was the vast majority of the bosniak muslim population was no longer there they had either been uh, run off, forcibly expelled, or killed off. Um, and then you also have, obviously, things like Priyadar, where the Bosnian Serb forces come in. They ended up marking um, houses. So basically, they announced, they take control over the whole municipality. They announce on the radio that everyone who is a non-Serb has to wear a white armband and put white flags or drapes on their house and then they come in and they basically kill off anybody who had any sort of significant power so any politicians diplomats police they killed all of them off and then they set up four or five concentration camps and like omarska um, and to napole 
And uh, once again, they, you know, take all the non-Serbs and they imprison them in concentration camps and kill them off. And then they bury their bodies in mass graves. So basically their strategy was very similar to wherever they went into any single town or village that they could reach. That was kind of the the strategy. It was come in, ethnically cleanse the place, which I hate using, but basically commit genocide, kill as many as you can, run off as many as you can. Um, and then obviously, you know, as these war crimes were getting worse and worse and worse, um, Bosnia doesn't really have a, a, an army in, in any sense of the world. Um, the word. Um, and there's an arms embargo placed on uh, the former Yugoslavia, Bosnia included, by the West. So they don't have weapons. They don't have, it's not a real army. It's literally civilians who were like, oh, I have to defend my family, right? Kind of thing. So there is obviously fighting and front lines, especially in, in places like Tuzla and Sarajevo. But for the most part, what we're seeing is Bosnian Serb forces coming in and attacking villages and towns as much as they can, particularly in the northern parts of the country and then kind of east towards central parts of the country. Um, and what all of this results to is as the war crimes escalate and things get worse, um, the UN implements, you know, safe areas um, in places like Gorazda, Sarajevo, Srebrenica, well, pretty much all the safe areas end up getting attacked eventually. But the the most notable one that people know of is Srebrenica, right? Um, and, you know, it's 1995, Radko Mladic has been taking his forces again, village to village. And, you know, they've been committing their crimes and they get to Srebrenica. Now, Srebrenica, because it was a safe area and because the Bosnian Serb forces had been sort of pillaging and attacking the the other smaller towns and villages in eastern Bosnia, pretty much anybody who was a survivor of those prior massacres that happened between 92 and 95 was now in Srebrenica in the quote-unquote UN safe area. So... Srebrenica in 1995 was almost like an open-air prison. There were masses of people there. And they were supposed to be under the protection of the UN forces. Um, but, unfortunately, that's not what happened. Instead, Radko Mladic made his way to Srebrenica and uh, basically split the men and the women up. Um, and he kicked out as many people as possible. Um, he took shots with the general of the UN, uh, you know, UN forces, UN peacekeepers. Um, and instead of these UN peacekeepers, you know, doing their jobs and protecting these people, they basically let Ratko Mladic come in and make the orders and do whatever he wanted to do. And what he would end up doing is killing over 8,000 people in just a matter of a week, basically. Um, and it was horrific. I mean, there's unfortunately some very graphic videos um, because they recorded themselves. 
um, Ratko Mladic, in fact, recorded himself entering the um, the town of Srebrenica, saying that they've come in to take revenge um, on the Turks, which they meant as like a derogatory word towards the Bosnian Muslims, because we're Muslim, the Turkish people are Muslim, so obviously we're the same. Um, so he had come in, you know, he, he basically announced himself and videotaped all of this, um, bragging about the war crimes that they were committing. Um, in fact, um, they had like a special unit of scorpions and there's still a very horrific video of these scorpion, the scorpion unit basically lining up, uh, Bosnian after Bosnian you know, from age 15, 12 to 90, and literally just executing them. And it's horrific. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's just a, a, a complete horror story. Of course, uh, I just, I, um, at, you know, after, after the conflict, you know, the quote unquote ended, um, I, I think that it's interesting to kind of talk about how the nationalism and nationalist conversation continued after that, because obviously, you know, think like much as, as you said, you know, like, uh, wars don't just start, uh, ethnic cleansing, uh, genocide doesn't just start out of nowhere. Right. And so in the same way, uh, when it ends, when war ends, it doesn't just, it doesn't just like, uh, you don't just close the door on it and that's it. It's over. Um, exactly. so, so can you talk a little bit about how this, how, how the kind of, uh, you know this nationalist agitation and and uh, uh, you know the the rhetoric uh, and and the, the the rhetoric of war and genocide um, because obviously again like it didn't it didn't just go away it, it must have you know in, in order for it to dissipate even it would need some time so what was what was that kind of interim period like so yeah the the interesting thing is obviously what actually brought the war to the end so after the srebrenica you know the genocide in srebrenica and then the massacres in sarajevo um it was kind of like a wake-up call to the international community and nato got involved there was like a, a operation deliberate force where they um actually attacked some uh, military targets of the republika Srpska army which forced them to the negotiating table. And then, you know, a lot of other stuff happened. But basically, we got the Dayton Peace Agreement, which in international diplomacy is still lauded, lauded as this, like, great uh, diplomatic win and this kind of exemplary um, agreement of peace. When, in fact, all it really did was all of those areas within Bosnia that were ethnically cleansed due to the genocide and the war crimes that the Bosnian Serbs forces were committing now belonged basically to the Bosnian Serbs. So all they did was basically reward them for doing genocide. The Dayton Agreement ethnically segregated the country. It is still one country, um, but it has basically two entities there's the Federation and then the Republika Srpska, and it has three presidents as a country. Like you have a president for the Croats, you have a president for the Bosniaks or the Bosnian Muslims, and you have president for the Serbs. And it's a basically they switched 
time periods where each of them is in charge. So with an agreement like that, do you think that the nationalism um, and the Islamophobia and the, the hatred is actually going to come to an end? Of course not. Probably not. <laughs> no, it, in fact, it, you know, Dayton agreement very much functioned as like a band-aid, right? It was just there like to temporarily stop the fighting, um, which is why there's constant, you know, kind of, I guess, fear mongering about the possibility of another war in the Balkans and particularly in Bosnia because Dayton was just that band-aid. And because we got a country that's split based on these ethnic lines and because we got leadership that is voted in and has power based on ethnic identities, the ethno-nationalism has just continuously gotten worse. And in fact, you know, thinking back to, obviously, I was a child, but even from what I've spoken uh, to other people and, and even from my own research, I can, you know, with certainty say that the ethno-nationalism has gotten worse in the last 10 years than how it was like right after the war, just because I think right after the war, people were really tired and they just wanted to rebuild and find the remains of their loved ones and deal with their, you know, grief um, that all of them were dealing and their PTSD. And so they weren't really paying attention at like the political situation. Um, And I think at the time, everybody was kind of like, oh, yes, anti-nationalism, ethno-nationalism is bad. We're going to bring the perpetrators of, of, you know, the genocide to justice, blah, blah, blah. And that kind of just ended up going away real, real fast. And then you had it, you had Milorad Dodik come to power, who was initially all um, anti-nationalism. He he admitted that there was a genocide that happened in Bosnia. He admitted that Radovan Karadzic and Ratko Mladic and Biljana Plavosic, they were all war criminals. He said it himself. But then he realized that just like Milosevic, he could have more power and more votes and more attention if he pursued that policy of ethno-nationalism and fear-mongering and propaganda. So he quickly switched, um, and he is the president of the Bosnian Serbs, so the Republika Srpska entity. Um, and his ethno-nationalism has just progressively gotten worse to the point where, you know, even today, just, I don't know, what was it, last week, he was um, he was in the EU parliament openly discussing about how Bosnia's not, you know, not calling us by our ethnic term, which is Bosniaks, but saying, you know, oh, the Muslims in Bosnia, they're terrorists, we're ISIS, we're trying to build uh, an ISIS, Al-Qaeda type state, um, and how we're going to be responsible for terrorist attacks in the future. Just really rampant, disgusting sort of Islamophobia. And he was absolutely allowed to say that in the EU parliament, by the way. Um, So now there's this really complex system in Bosnia. And it's a disaster. And it's been a disaster for the past 30 years. It's progressively getting worse. And because the leaders in general, in Bosnia, are so shit, 
<laughs> I can't say it any other way. Just they're just shit at being leaders. The only thing that they actually have going for themselves is this sort of fear mongering and basically kind of, you know, lying to the people. If you don't vote for me, they're going to, you know, the Muslims are coming and they're going to get you and they're going to put your daughters in hijabs and they're going to, you know, make you be ISIS or whatever. And on the same, other hand, you have. Story. Yeah, exactly. Support, same right? story. And the Croatian side does the same thing. You know, all of them do it, really. All of them. They're all, you know, using the the fear of the genocide and the war that all of these people went through for their own sort of personal gain. And they're also using, you know, their ethno-nationalism or, you know, Islamophobia for their own personal gain. And it does not seem to... Uh, be ending anytime soon unfortunately the sorry but unfortunately the west um and the eu leadership in particular but also the american leadership absolutely 100 percent supports these people um they give them the platform to spew this they you know they threaten sanctions on milorad dodik they threaten a whole bunch of stuff but they don't ever actually act um and so they've kind of been pursuing very much this policy of appeasement towards uh, Dodik and Chovic, where, you know, they're going to, they they will basically at this point almost do anything um, to appease them rather than doing anything to actually stop their constant ethno-nationalism. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that that's uh, a good way to kind of, uh, transition for for the last twenty minutes here into kind of in, into kind of broadening it out a little bit. I mean, uh, I remember I think I think it was last year uh, there there were images and video of Bosnian Serbs re- like really like out uh, in a, in a way that um, we had we in the West hadn't seen them out in a while, uh, being very very uh, forthright about their desire to. Uh, you know, uh, uh, get it going again, I guess is, is one way to put it. And, uh, um, uh, and, you know, you're talking about the West really not doing anything. Uh, I mean, why do you think that is? Do you think that they're afraid, uh, that if they do that, the, that the situation will explode in a way that they can't control. And so, and so like, um, you know, and so it might, it, it might require like the reinvestment of, um, uh, you know, some kind of like military intervention, yeah, yeah. Um, like like maybe they're hoping that if they can just kind of like contain it to like skirmishes and and uh, and and whatever that they can just kind of ignore it. Um, I mean, do you think that there's a possibility that sanctions would then lead to like worse behavior? And maybe may, I mean, maybe that's the rationale. Maybe they just don't care. Maybe it's some kind of combination of of both of those and maybe some other stuff. But I'm curious what you think it is. I mean, yeah, I do think that they're they. You know, I think for one thing, you know, the West and in, in general, um, they don't have like a huge reason to care much about Bosnia. If we're being honest, I mean, it's a small country um, that doesn't have like wide political reach or any sort of benefit. But technically, they are meant to be our allies. Right. Um, I think it's a bit different for the United States and the EU. I think the United States definitely has that, um, you know let's just do the bare minimum and really not our problem kind of thing. Um, So they, you know, they constantly give out statements about their support and how 
they'll do anything to help Bosnia and how they, they give out statements of condemnation and stuff like that, which good enough. And actually they have um, sanctioned Dudik before, which is a good thing. Um, him as an individual, not obviously the country. So nobody has suffered, thankfully, <laughs> but um, they've, they've done stuff like that. But for the most part, I think that they just have like a nonchalant almost attitude. Uh, on the other hand, the EU's policy towards Bosnia has always been uh, quite Islamophobic in nature, to be honest with you. I mean, we have, you know, evidence of European leadership um, talking about not lifting the arms embargo and leaving Bosnia defenseless because Bosnia did not belong and because there was, um, what was it? Uh, I think it was either uh, John Mayer or Major or Mitterrand. I think it was the the French president Mitterrand who said that um, a peaceful no no sorry a brutal but necessary restoration of a Christian Europe something along those lines. Basically, Bosnia did not belong because it was not a Muslim country. So I think because it was a Muslim country, because yeah, because it was a Muslim country and like a Muslim majority country in the EU and Europe is not welcome, basically. So the quotes are out there. I've quoted them before on my Twitter account, but I can never like remember who precisely it was said, but it was the European leadership, basically. And I think, unfortunately, um, you know, Islamophobia is very strong in Europe. And I do think that it still does um, carry weight, uh, particularly in policymaking. And I think some people consider uh, me to be a bit too dramatic about this, but I disagree. I think when you're giving Islamophobes a platform in the European Parliament and you're not disrupting them, while they're basically saying that the entire people of a country are terrorists and they're going to you know, be responsible for terrorist attacks. I think that says it all. I also think that the EU is maybe now finally starting to see a little bit more about why they should care about Bosnia. And that is only because of Putin and sort of Putin's involvement in the Balkans and the fact that, you know, Dodik and Chovic are kind of Putin's men in Bosnia, just like Vucic is in Serbia. And sort of the political, um, the deep political ties between the two. So I feel like they're almost starting to open their eyes a little bit and kind of be like, oh, maybe there is, there is an issue. But I don't really see them doing anything really material. Um, there was a vote for sanctions. It just failed because of uh, another one of Dodik and Putin's buddies, um, Viktor Orban, obviously. He sort of made sure that sanctions against Dadik and Chovic cannot happen. So we're... It's, it's, I just want to say it's, it's just interesting, like, the way that um, it's, it's, not, it, it's, it's not the um, Islamophobic attacks. It's not the ethno-nationalism. It's not the discrimination and racism and... Uh, and, 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 and the fact that the country is so split that is that is prompting this intervention, as you're saying, like it seems like one of the main reasons is that now that they've decided that they want to uh, basically have 
you know, Cold War number two with Russia. Like that, like that now seems like that seems to be a bigger motivator right now than than anything else. Yeah, absolutely. I I definitely think that there's not like they're paying a lot more attention now than they have in the last you know several years because of Russia's you know involvement. Meanwhile, Russia's been involved in Bosnia for a really long time. In fact, Russia's Night Wolves march alongside the Chetniks through, you know, Srebrenica and Visegrad constantly screaming about how Ratko Mladic is a hero and how, you know, there's going to be another genocide and kind of threatening and traumatizing the the returnees to the area. So the Russian involvement in Bosnia is really not new, um, but it is suddenly intriguing, I think, obviously, because, you know, Putin has, you know, is waging this war in Ukraine, um, and and I think a lot of people think that there is a possibility of this leading to another conflict in the Balkans as well. Um, so I do think that any sort of intervention is is not coming out of this like great, you know, oh we have to protect Bosnia because there's innocent people there. It's more like we have to protect Bosnia from Russian influence and intervention. Yeah, there's no moral underpinning here. No, I mean, and as a Bosnian, I will take it. I personally don't care because obviously my, you know, my personal uh, thing is always going to be as long as the country is protected and safe, that's going to be my preference. But it is a bit hypocritical, <laughs> if nothing else. Yeah. I mean, yeah, mo- like mo- motivations are always important, uh, you know, like whether or not uh, the... The result is desired or not. It's always interesting and, and important, I think, to, to pay attention to that. Um, I, uh, I want to ask you about, you know, I, I want to go back again to, um, to the Bosnian Serbs out in, in, the, in, in the streets and, uh, you know, <laughs> waving flags and making noise. And, and you're talking about, you know, who knows if there might be another conflict. Um, it, it, but everything that you're saying, it does sound like it's it's slowly it's it's like the same thing as we were saying at the top of the program, right? When you were talking yeah. about how how it, it like this stuff doesn't just happen, right? No, it, it, it it's a very slow process. So, do you think that we're witnessing kind of like another one of those slow processes that we're that we're seeing uh, the beginning of something that you know, and it might not happen for like a decade or two decades, but that there is something ugly building once again. Absolutely. Um, and it's hard because I've been, you know, I've been trying to do rationalize it away, to be honest with you, for like years now. Um, and there's been lots of my my own colleagues who have been, particularly the past year, kind of warning and writing about the possibility of another conflict and another genocide in Bosnia. And I've been sort of like, OK, let's uh, let's take a step back. Let's think about this rationally. And I have been, I, I have been thinking about it rationally and I have been looking at all the evidence. Um, one of the biggest things that sort of triggered the current political crisis in Bosnia has been the fact that the uh, Office of the High Representative has finally implemented an anti-genocide denialism law in Bosnia. This means that you cannot deny genocide, you cannot deny war crimes, and you cannot glorify the perpetrators of the war crimes. Now, it doesn't mention anything about, but you know, Muslims, Christians, Catholics, or you know, Bosniaks, Croats, Serbs. It is it is a law that impacts everyone. So, 
No glorifying of any war criminals, no glorification of any war crimes, whatever side may have committed them. And obviously no genocide denialism. <coughs> Excuse me. I need a glass of water. I'm sorry oh, about that. Um, but that has really infuriated Milorad Dodik. And he has since then kind of been throwing this like little hissy fit. Um, he's been basically trying to get all of the, he's been trying to basically push for secession. So for Republika Srpska to join Serbia and um, has threatened another war, another genocide, and has really emboldened some of the worst nationalist groups. So these Chutnik groups, these night wolves that come in that, you know, they're not shy about it. Um, they, there's been, you know, it's been 26 years, or sorry, it's been over 30 years since the, 30 years, yes, since the, the, the war basically started and the genocide started. Um, and in that 30 years, there's been either constant genocide denialism and constant genocide glorification at the same time. There's this been this thing of Ratko Mladic and Radovan Karavic are innocent, they've done nothing wrong, but also you deserved it and we're going to do it again, <laughs> you know, kind of thing, uh, which is standard with every single uh, genocide denialist kind of rhetoric. We see it with the Holocaust. We see it a lot with the Armenian genocide. It's a specific tactic. So you've had this boiling basically for 30 years and then you get this law that's basically finally saying no more listen no more no more genocide denialism no more glorification um and it it did actually result in less glorification within the media and publicly but it is only further emboldened Milorad Dodik who is now doing his best to kind of sow as much turmoil as he can um, and basically, you know, do his best to weaken the country as much as possible and to kind of put it in this place of conflict. And then on the other side, you do have Putin's involvement in Bosnia as well. Like I said, the Russian night wolves are there constantly and the Russian ambassador to Bosnia and Herzegovina said live on TV in an interview, I don't know, five, six days ago, basically saying, you know, Bosnia is next if we were to try to join the EU or NATO. Um, they basically said, you know, if you, you saw what happened to Ukraine, we're going to do the same thing to you. Like, you're free to do what you want, but we are free to um, react to those choices. So we, you should choose carefully kind That's of thing. That's, that's, I mean, I, I don't know if this is going to start a whole, like, we only have a couple more minutes, but uh, <laughs> what, but what is, what, I mean, what would be their motivation? Like why, I mean, Bosnia is, uh, there are a number of countries between uh, even Ukraine and, and Bosnia. Like why, why would, why would Bosnia uh, joining be, be such a trigger for, uh, for Russia? No idea. No idea. Other than the fact that, like, Russia and Serbia are obviously close. Um, and, you know, they have their whole, like, little Christian, Orthodox Christian brotherhood thing going on. Um, 
I have no idea what is, you know, there's no way that Bosnia joining NATO is antagonizing Russia in any way um, or joining the EU, that that's antagonizing Russia. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of people have like made this thing, you know, maybe Russia is just trying to act tough. Maybe, maybe they are. But the thing is, I don't think Russia is going to actually attack Bosnia. I think what they'll do is, you know, there's Republika Srpska with Dodik ruling over it. And then there's Serbia with Vucic ruling over it right next to Bosnia. So there's plenty of ways, I think, to ensure that some sort of conflict happens in Bosnia with Russia actually not being involved physically at all. Um, I don't know what, you know, what what the point would be of Russia actually attacking Bosnia. And I don't see it that way at all. I see it more as a, they, they have a deep relationship with Serbia. Um, and obviously Serbia has a whole complex thing with NATO. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's, maybe it's about that. I don't know. Or it's about them acting tough and just kind of trying to flex their muscle. But if there is a sort of conflict, obviously, Serbia and Russia are going to stand by each other, um, which poses a, a huge risk to Bosnia. Um, and I think a lot of people underestimate just how uh, big of a deal the Balkans are when it comes to like international politics, particularly when it comes to war. I mean, this goes back in history, you know, centuries, really. Um, whoever rules the Balkans, you know, has influence over the world is what some people have said. So I feel like we've constantly been um, in this, like, I don't know, this little fight between Russia and the West or Russia and the U.S., and we're kind of stuck in the middle. So I definitely do see the possibility of all of it escalating and poor yeah. us kind of being stuck there as, like, these, you know... Um, you know casualties yeah so, i mean it, it it sounds kind of like saber rattling maybe a little bit of a threat but 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 like you're saying probably only really manifesting in uh you know the like military assistance but it's not like russia's going to just yeah yeah, yeah. I, i'm not seeing it. i know some people are i just i don't really buy it i mean obviously i wouldn't dismiss anything russia says but well, I would dismiss some of what Russia says, actually. But I do think that they are, you know, they're they're obviously in the midst of a war. So they're going to try to make themselves look a lot tougher and bigger and scarier than they are. That's just what any nation does in, in war. Um, I do think, absolutely. I just don't see them directly attacking Bosnia, like right after Ukraine. Like you're next. Any one of the other like Baltic countries would make a lot more sense. Absolutely. But not. Bosnia. That's not to say that they wouldn't like support Serbia's plans to attack Bosnia, but I also don't necessarily see Serbia doing it either. I think if conflict breaks out in Bosnia, it's going to be Republika Srpska, Dodik kind of thing, and then it will escalate to involve Serbia and maybe Russia. So, I mean, and hopefully we don't get to that point um, because there's just so many different groups of people involved in Bosnia already. Um, and I think, you know, if another conflict breaks out, we're just going to see even more people involved and that's not going to result into anything good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, 
another another war between great powers with uh with one with another country caught in the center yeah. um, exactly exactly very much so yeah well arnessa um I, I i think that's a good a good place to end it um thank you so much uh for coming and joining and talking where can people find you and find your work yeah you can uh, find me on twitter at r r r r r n e s s a um, or on my website, arnasacostura.com. Great. All right. And for uh, for everybody uh, listening on the app, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, uh, please sign up and give us a rating. Always appreciate that. Um, Arnesa, thank you again uh, for joining us. Thanks, everybody in the audience. And uh, we'll see you next week. Bye. Thank you.